What's up guys, welcome back to the show today, it's your host William here at World of Wally. Today's episode uh, takes a little different route than we usually do. The guest I have today, um, she has a very unique story, an extremely unique story. You know, they say that uh, space is the final frontier, or at least a lot of people believe that. Uh, you know, Star Trek made it popular. Um, and then there are other folks that think death is the final frontier because they don't believe in anything beyond their physical death here on earth. Now, me being a believer, a follower of Christ, I believe that there is an afterlife and mine will include um, a meeting with God, a meeting with Jesus um, in heaven, or whatever the, my concept of heaven is. And we could get into that, but that'd be a whole different episode. My guest today um, had what would be considered by most as a near-death experience. And I know you've heard the term near-death experience before. And near-death, it's usually pretty uh, pretty cookie-cutter. It's, uh, I saw a bright light. Uh, I saw lost loved ones. I saw someone from my past. I saw an angelic figure. I saw God. And then I was pulled away from it back into my body. Well, that's sort of the story we're going to hear today. It's 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 not anywhere close to what I just described. Now my my guest today, uh, Miss Mary Catherine um, McDaniel, she is um, a near death experience individual. She wrote a book about her experience. Uh, she goes by Kathy, so you'll hear me refer to her as Kathy throughout the uh, the interview or the conversation we had. Now for 40 years, she was a real estate property expert. She was then the management aspect of it. But in January of 2000, uh, she became an ARDS survivor and a dark near-death experiencer. She talks about how she toured parts of hell and how she would not recommend it to anyone and they need to um, move away from that or go in a different direction, I believe is how she described it. Her book, uh, Misfit in Hell to Heaven, Expot, offers glimpses of a dysfunctional family life before her near-death experience and the after effects of such a life-twisting experience. Of course, she invites her readers to follow her, um, her footsteps throughout hell as she explains it in her Bible and um, her encounter with an unbelievable love in heaven. Uh, guys, her story was just, uh, it was captivating. And uh, as we chatted and the longer she talked, uh, the more engrossed I was in her story. And I think you guys also will be the same. So after the break, guys, my guest today near-death experiencer, Mary Catherine McDaniel, or Kathy McDaniel. Hi guys, after the break. Hey guys, quick shout out to Timothy O. Davis of Ridgewood Recording Studios. His studio offers a full line of music production ranging from song demos and singles to fully produced albums. He focuses on excellence at every level of the recording and production process and will work with you for your project-specific needs. So remember, guys, Timothy O. Davis. Reach out to him at timothydavis.org front slash Ridgewood Studios. All right, guys, we're back from the break, and as promised, my guest, uh, Miss M.K. McDaniel. How are you doing today, ma'am? 
I'm doing great, William. How are you? I'm outstanding. Now, for my listeners' reference, from this point on, I will refer to her as Kathy because I'll forget MK. <laughs> All right. So, uh, she has a very unique story. Uh, we hear about these, I hear, I have heard about these types of, of occurrences off and on throughout my lifetime, but I've never actually ever had the opportunity to meet someone who has gone through what she's gone through. Uh, she actually is the, um, I guess we'd have to refer to you as a survivor of a near-death experience, but she's more than just that one moment in time. She's got quite a, a, a history of, uh, it's, we're going to take it back to uh, as far as she needs to go back to kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about today. She definitely will be talking about what happened to her in January of the year 2000. So uh, let's go ahead and get started, Kathy. Let's first of all, let me let me give it. She is not an expert in near-death experience and or anything associated with it. For about four decades, her expertise was in real estate property management. Is that correct? That's correct. All right, you knew how to do that. This new this near-death experience stuff was something new to you. So let's it sure uh, was. let's let's I go had to back take as, a crash course. Let's go back as far as you need to go to kind of give us the backstory before those events of January two thousand played out. Okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, going way back, uh, I start my my story in my book back with my grandparents because there was kind of a diverse group of people back there. They were um, young people in the in nineteen twenties, which was kind of an interesting time for America. And out of my four grandparents, three of them were alcoholics. Uh, nice people. Uh, my grandma on my mother's side was very sweet and very kind. My grandfather, however, was a mean drunk. He had a very good job and um, was a provider, but he just got nasty. And uh, my mother was an only child. And uh she wanted to get out of the household when she was in high school. Let's just put it that way. Whereas my dad came from farming folk. They were kind of sharecroppers in, in Oklahoma. And uh, several of the family members lived on adjoining farms. So he, uh, he started off his life in a very different environment. Um, his, my grandmother uh, was from a large family, just like everybody. And she decided uh, shortly after having her second child in a year and a half that uh, she was not gonna stay on the farm. So uh, she lit out, uh, got divorced, first divorced in the whole family and went for the, to the big city to start her own little business and took my dad who was about four and his sister who was about two and a half. And uh, they lived pretty much in boarding houses while grandma was at work. Grandma was an alcoholic. The only non-alcoholic was with my grandfather who lived on the farm. They didn't have money for alcohol. So uh, this is where my parents came from. So they met in high school. My dad was poor. My mom was beautiful and young and just a doll and dating all these really nice rich boys. And then there's my dad. Uh, they fell in love. Uh, he got called up for duty for World War II. He joined up uh, to become one of the first airline, uh, not airline, air pilots, fighters in World War II and was called away uh, to the uh, West Coast. And uh, he didn't want to leave my mom uh, in that terrible situation. So they got married 
and uh, she was uh, 16 and he was 17 and a half. So uh, people said it would never last and they just had their 76th wedding anniversary. They're both in their 90s now. Yeah. Um, so my dad, when he went to war, uh, was flying the jet, uh, not jet, the, the fighter pilot. He was a fighter pilot in the Philippines and he was shot down. And uh, he had been an atheist his whole life. He did not believe in God. Um, so anyway, here is planes crash landing on the beach. It does three cartwheels across the sand, lands upside down. Uh, he has a broken cockpit, so he's now drowning in sand. And he thinks about God, obviously, and says, God, if you can get me out of this mess, I'll become a Catholic and my whole family will too. Just as he said that, Three guys ran out from the uh, jungle, picked the tail of the plane up, and pulled him out of the uh, of the plane. They saved his life, took him into the jungle, got him patched up, and got him back to the states. Needless to say, we were raised a Catholic family. He he was uh, very sincere about that. So my whole life, I went to Catholic schools, and I uh, my dad stayed in the Navy. So we moved every two and a half to four years: East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. Uh, the kids, my sister and my brother and I never really ever settled anywhere. We never got any longtime friends. Uh, the, we never saw any of our other family members. Um, my mom wanted to stay far away from them. Um, once in a while, I'd meet one or two of them here or there. So we were a pretty close-knit family. Uh, when I was in high school uh, out on the West Coast in a beautiful um retirement town that we, my dad had been stationed. Uh, my family got transferred back to Kansas, which coming from California in a beach town at uh, 19, I did not want to go back to Kansas. So um, I married this really nice guy with a, a very cool car. And that's about as mature as that relationship was. Um, we did stay married uh, 10 years and our first baby died when she was just a couple of days old. And that was my first, first experience with really coming up against God. Uh, I didn't understand that at all. Uh, I had been a good person and I maybe suffered and it was awful. And I, I was very angry with God for a long time. I still went to church, but I was thinking nasty thoughts about God the whole time. Right. Uh, I continued to raise my children, my I got divorced. They were little. I had some, uh, it was in uh, the time of the seventies where everybody was a little bit freer than they had been before. And so it was a very interesting social environment to be 30 years old with two little kids. Um, after a few years, I married somebody with two kids and, uh, turned out he had a mental problem. So, um, that didn't last but about three years, and that was an ugly breakup. Now my kids are uh, older, and, and I'm still single. Uh, started I've been in, started in, in real estate with somebody else, the property management. And my life was going along, and I met this wonderful man, honestly. He was just a great fella, and we had a lot in common. And, and uh, we, we uh, had a relationship. We bought a house together, and uh, he's the one that said... Uh, Quit working for other people. You're so good at this. Start your own business and push me into doing that, which I did. 
and it was very successful and I loved it. I loved the freedom. And my kids were going to high school and then to college and we were still together, my friend and I. Uh, we were engaged at that point and um, he was a, very much a workaholic and so was I. And so that worked out fine because the teenagers were doing their thing. Um, but then it came to a point where he was going to be transferred for a, um, he was going to get a really good position in, in the company, but he had to go to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And here my family, my children were in college on the West Coast. I had my business that I'd had for, you know, uh, 10 years now. Uh, I, I couldn't leave to go to Chicago right. and, and sit home while he went to work all day long. So it, it just, it just wasn't going to work. So we stayed best friends. He moved to the East coast. I stayed where I was. And then about a year later, he phoned and said he needed to come talk to me. So he flew out and told me that he had uh, leukemia hmm. and he was 53 and I uh, picture health. And I was shocked. And he says, I'm going to go to Seattle and have this um, experimental hospital where they're going to try drugs that they've not tried on other people and see if they can, they can save me. And I need a, a caregiver. And um, we had been dating someone who said that she would go to. So the three of us went out. It was supposed to be a three to five month program. And things, it was, it was just hellish. Uh, he was, he was well one week, he'd be doing really well and all his numbers were up. And then the next week he'd crash and they'd pull him from the jaws of death. And she and I took, uh, shifts, uh, staying with him at the hospital sometimes, uh, six hour shifts. And we lived in downtown Seattle, mm -hmm. uh, up on Pill Hill, which is a little scary at night. And, you know, if I had the 2 a.m. to 8 p.m. shift, I'd walk over at 2 a.m., she'd be passing me in the street. And uh, one time I said, should we be scared about somebody attacking us or something? She says, if somebody attacks me, I'll kill them. <laughs> she says, we are so <laughs> stressed and yeah. tired and, and uh, don't touch me, you know, just don't do it. Right. So that was kind of about this aura, I think, that we threw around ourselves to, to keep ourselves safe. We were like zombies. And, uh, but we tried our hardest and uh, that, two to five months turned into eight. And by the time he passed away, I, I was a physical, mental, and emotional wreck. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't believe he died. I just couldn't believe it. So I was preparing um, during the, this time that he was in the hospital. And just before I had met this very nice person, a felon, he lived out of town his brother lived in Seattle. We ran across each other that way. But anyway, he was very supportive and very kind. And uh, while I was going through this phone calls and he'd come over for dinner and that kind of stuff when he wasn't working at mm -hmm. nights. But anyway, he was a good friend. So when, when my friend died, I had a full-time job because at the last couple of weeks, they sent me away. Um, his the other lady, they had married just before they'd left to come out and she kicked me out. Mm. So um, I would still come on weekends to see him. And um, that was hard too. But so I was run down. 
um, my friend, my boyfriend invited me to California. He was going to sing at a concert. I went down there. They had this horrible flu going around, very virulent flu. It's a pneumonia kind of thing. And I picked it up. And so when we came back, uh, in a very short order, I came down with this thing and, uh, it was just this awful coughing. It's, it's very similar to what COVID is, is right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, so one night, uh, I, I, when my friend called, I says, look, you need to come spend the night here, please on the couch, because I I've never been so sick. I was up on the third floor of an apartment building and, um, he says, oh, all right, I'm really tired from work, but I'll do it. Well, thank God he did, because in the middle of the night, I woke up coughing blood, and uh, I knew that was really bad. So he helped me down three flights of stairs, took me to the emergency uh, dock in the box thing in the middle of the night. And by the time we got there, it was the strangest thing. I um, I just felt like all the my energy was just kind of sinking uh, like a thermometer when the temperature goes down. It was just falling in my body. And, and I, I was trying to open the door to get, get out. And, and I was saying, I'm dying, I'm dying. But he couldn't hear me. So he slammed on the brakes and ran over the front of the car. And I fell onto the street there, picked me up, carried me inside, and they couldn't find a pulse. And uh, so they uh, called an ambulance and they got me started again and took me to a, a hospital nearby to the emergency room. I don't remember any of that. Um, I just remember waking up in the hospital uh, in an oxygen tent and my parents were there and they were from, you know, they weren't from that town. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm really sick, you know, and it was New Year's Eve. I remember that. And it was 1999 and it was going into 2000 and they had. Dick Clark or whoever the guy is now on there and the ball was coming down. <clears throat> I thought, whoa, I was last, I remembered it was December 28th. Now it's the 31st. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, I, I must've been out of it. And, but I was just sick. And um, so finally they told my family that I wasn't breathing enough. So they put a nice trach scar in here and intubated me and put me into a coma. And I just remember waving goodbye to my dad. Um, And then uh, I was in the coma for almost three weeks. They came every day, they take turns with me. Um, uh, I'd be good one day, not so good the next. My daughter uh, tried to, she was uh, really good with computers and the, the lung pulmonologist says, well, she's going into ARDS is what she's got. That's acute respiratory distress syndrome. Most of the people that die from SARS or COVID, I'm told, actually it goes into um, ARDS, which is lung failure. Your, your lungs fill up with this goopy, messy stuff and then turns to concrete, basically. Right. And your, your organs shut down and you die. So they have to keep enough air pressure going into your lungs to keep them open, but not so much as to blow one out. But if they don't keep enough pressure in it and they start to deflate, they stick together and you're toast. So Mm -hmm. one of my lungs did collapse part way. I've still got a lot of scarring on that side. It's funny. I go to the doctor 
they say, wow, you need a lung transplant. I said, no, I'm fine. That's just the scarring from, I, I've learned to adapt. Right. But in the meantime, my, my daughter had found the right temperatures to, or not temperatures, but uh, different pressures to use for, for the lung machine and helped my uh, doctor figure it out. I, I learned later. Um, so while somewhere in there, uh, when I was gone, just, I wasn't even conscious enough to know I was unconscious. You're just like, you're in a dead sleep. You're just nowhere. Um, and I can't remember anything that happened in there, but all of a sudden, uh, I became aware of being someplace and I'll, I'll just read for your listeners. I'll just read what that felt like. Uh, okay. You can't describe it well, so I've got it kind of succinctly down here in the book. Uh -huh. It says, I didn't feel dead, only confused. Total darkness and absolute silence were my only references. Not daring to move, I waited. The blackness morphed into a reddish glow, dragging with it a stinking heat. Acrid fog, muffled moans, and ungodly shrieks. This can't be good. Something was staring at me. Like a blow, a voice thundered. Do you know where you are? My mind raced, searching for some rational explanation. But part of me already knew. Hell, I whispered. To my horror, the answer was an ear-splitting, maniacal laugh. The evil crept closer as I clamped shaking hands over my ears. Panic surged in me, triggering the requirement for fight or flight. Fighting was not an option. I turned and ran. So that's how it started. A perfectly normal life. And now I'm not in Kansas anymore. I, 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 and I, the entire time I was there, and I was there a long time, I never knew I was dead. You, I felt still like me. Uh, you know, the consciousness, our spirits don't change, whether you're on this side or that side. It's still you. Um, I didn't have a mirror, so I couldn't look and see if I had a body, but I didn't think I was dead, so I assumed I did. I was looking at other creatures, they had bodies. They seemed real. It was like being in a really bad movie. Um, so after that, uh, there were several different scenarios that presented themselves. Other people have different experiences. This was mine. Um, it was like being in this uh, bombed out city, an apocalyptic uh, hell scene. I, buildings were toppled and burning the sky was reddish there's smoke everywhere there was a uh, it was just uh like again i was dropped into it and so my survival instincts were still uh, in uh with me so i i hid and i looked around for other people i i saw some shape that looked like a person way far away and i just yelled out um you know hello uh, um can you you want to get together? I said, yeah, I'll go look for firewood. You go look for water. I mean, the Girl Scout thing came up and, and this lonely, awful voice just yelled back, we are 
all alone here. Oh my gosh, I mean, you can't believe the terror and, and um, all I could think of is how to get out of here. That's all I could think of. I've got to get to safety. I've been reading some books, last couple of books I've read about, uh, you know, if, if there was an EMP, uh, they, they knock out all the power all over the United States and what happens then, you know, there's chaos and people murdering each other. It was kind of like that. It could happen. You know, so I still thought I was on earth and I just dropped into this scene. So that went on and on. I finally found myself in another place, which was a strange place, but there was somebody I knew that was alive. And I thought, again, okay, I'm still alive. Wonder why she's here. So we had this little interchange, but it was not a pleasant one. And it was almost like that wasn't really her. Maybe somebody I don't know. I was confused. I had to leave. It was not comfortable. It was not safe. So I walked just away from her and a whole completely different scene was there. That went on and on and on until I got to a place that the demons showed up. Um, real demons. I mean, I don't know what else to call them. They were big and ugly and mean. And it, it, over series of events, it seemed like they were just playing with me like a cat plays with a mouse. Uh, this was entertainment. They, they told me I had to do specific tasks and then I could get out. Well, I wasn't sure what get out meant, but it was good. So I would say, well, what's that? But then they would give me things that were impossible to do or they were just against my moral code. Um, one instance was um, being a Catholic, I, I did not go in for abortion, obviously. Uh, one place I was in was this sort of hospital and I just, again, was dropped into it and all of a sudden there's bright lights in a hall and, and um, I, I looked to the right and the left, there's two doors that are kind of open. So I peeked into one and there was all these women on, gurneys, but they were like in an exam room for uh, an obstetrician and these doctors were working between these women's legs and, and the smell was bad. And, and I thought, what's going on in there? And I thought, oh my gosh, I figured it out, you know? So I'm backing out of the room and bump into this demon, uh, big guy. And uh, he says, your job is to go into that room and give Whatever the doctors hand you, you take that into this room over here and you put it in a pile and you come back and you start over again. That's your job. You're going to keep doing it. And he's standing there with this big truncheon or whatever it was. Uh, and I, I, I thought I just backed up, you know, and went into the room and I, uh, some doctor had a bloody hand up in the air and he, he turned around and says, get over here. So I did, I went over and he had aborted this poor little torn up baby and put it in my arms. And, uh, and he says, get, you know? And so I walked into the hall and horrified, I was shocked beyond what to do. And that this demon says, he just points to the other room. So I walk into this room that was as big as a Costco, you know, an empty Costco. And there was just piles and piles of these little dead bodies in there and the, the sight and the smell. And I mean, 
I was just beyond shocked and horrified. And I laid this poor little baby down and went back in the hall and he pointed to the other room. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, oh, yes, you are. Otherwise, you have no idea what else will happen to you next. And I just crossed my arms and I just said, no. Well, it got worse. Uh, there was an incident with some uh, in a town, terrible town, uh, in be, uh, with terrible like zombie people in there. And uh, between these, these, these instances, I would get on this monotonous road that just was dark and, and uh, scary and it just went on and on and on and I would be walking and, and, and I, I thought I was hungry. I felt like I was thirsty. I, I, I kept thinking, I just don't understand what this is and how am I gonna get out of here? This went on and on for a very long time. When I got home back, I, 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 somebody says, well, you were only, could have only been gone for a short time. I says, no, I was there for a couple of years. And they said, well, that's not possible. And so all this had to, I had to figure all this out when I came back. But for the time being, I just thought, I'll, I'll just think about this later. But in the last instance, the last scenario I found myself in was really bad. And um, I was getting really depressed. People kept saying along the way, you know, just give up, just despair. You're never going to get out, you know. And I, I thought, no, I, I, I'm a strong person and I'm, I'm not going to let this beat me. But at the end, um, there was a, by accident, I, uh, well, it was a terrible place to be and uh, with a bunch of other women that were going to be involved in this terrible uh, uh, new employment. And um, the demon lady that was there was uh, uh, nasty and awful. We were tired and, and disgruntled and I was just about ready to give up and and I said to her I don't know I there's this has got to be like some particularly bad day here because uh I've been here a while and it's particularly nasty and and uh, she said well it's Christmas on earth it's always a tough day down here and I thought Christmas oh Christmas so I just started singing a Christmas carol this little religious Christmas carol I remembered and the other lady started singing too well this demon lady started screaming and came rushing at me and I just shut my eyes and I thought well I'm gonna go someplace else but boom all of a sudden I feel this rush of of joy and love and bright light and I've completely forgotten what just happened, it's, it's gone. I don't remember anything. I don't remember earth. I don't remember this last thing. I'm just in this marvelous feeling, just, it's in a, you know, you can't explain to people how that is. It's just not, there's no words, but it was wonderful. And to top it off, I look and there's my friend. You know, I, I died a, a month after he did. And, and he's been there, he's staring at me and he's laughing, he's smiling. Oh, I was so excited. I thought, wow, he looks terrific. You know, the last time I'd seen him, he had dying of leukemia. He looked terrible, no hair and blotchy and, and sick. And I thought, oh, he looks great. Hmm. 
And I thought, wow, he's got that sweater vest I gave him for Christmas. Uh, he's wearing, um, and he's just smiling. And I thought, wow, he's hearing what I'm saying and I'm not talking. And I thought, oh my God, he doesn't know he's dead. You know, I kind of giggled to myself. I thought, well, I'm not going to tell him. And that's when he really burst out laughing. And I thought, uh-oh, bing, the lights went on. I thought, wow, if he's dead, then I must be dead. And I thought, I'm dead. I, I tried it on, you know, and it sounded good because this was, this was obviously heaven and I made it. And, oh, I was so excited. I was just so thrilled. And then he said, now, Mary Kay, you've got too much left to do. And I thought, that's not what I wanted to hear at all. You know, they're, they're giving me the bums rush here. I thought, I said, no, uh-uh, no. And uh, he just smiled. I was gone. And there was a, a little transition time where they let me kind of go by a stream and follow my way back. But then when I opened my eyes in the ICU unit, uh, and I was shocked, <laughs> to say the least. You know, then the hell thing came back. So I've got the hell thing going on, the heaven thing going on, and I'm laying here. My family's there. I can't move. I can't talk. They're all excited and jumping around. It was too much. It was very overwhelming. And uh, it was probably a good thing I couldn't speak because it probably would have been a strong string of very unladylike words <laughs> because this was just not where I wanted it to be. Um, it took time. Thank God I didn't talk for a couple of days. They finally took that thing out and gave me another device. So I sounded like a robot kind of thing, but it was better than being silent. But I couldn't move at all. I'd lost all my muscle mass. I was 86 pounds. I could blink and move one finger. And I, these words are reverberating in my skull. You have too much left to do. And I thought, uh-huh, how is that going to happen? You know, I'm 53 years old. I quit my job. I have no place to live. I can't move. And, and you tell me I've got too much left to do before I can go back to heaven. It was just cruel, just cruel. So anyway, it was a long uh, recovery. Um, I was in the hospital, the ICU um, a month, and then I had to go to a physical therapy rehab for a month. I had to totally re relearn how to walk, talk, feed myself, crawl, go upstairs. Um, I couldn't do anything. I had to learn like a baby all over again. And all the time they're trying to get me to eat, nothing tasted good. They finally, they wouldn't let me out unless I got up to a hundred pounds. And finally, mm -hmm. one of the little nurses, she wasn't so little, she was a big lady. When I was at 99 for like three days in a row, she just put her little toe of her shoe on it. So I went, bling, 101. So that was the only way I got out of there. But I had no place to go. I mean, my parents said, sure, you can come live with us. And I thought, uh-uh, that's not going to work. They had a little two-bedroom apartment, you know, house and one bath and I thought, no. Uh, so my friend who I had had been dating, we, he had been there every single day in the hospital. I didn't know it. Um, he, had, he 
uh, asked me to marry him when, when I would, just before I left the hospital. And he says, I'll take care of you. You know, we'll be fine. And God bless him. You know, I thought, wow, that's, that's something. Uh, so we, we did, we, we, we moved it back in, um, into a little house and got married and uh, stayed married for about 11 years. And uh, during that time, I was able to, I wrote, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote because the heaven thing was so short and wonderful, but the hell thing was so huge. And I was so afraid to even sleep for fear that the demons would come back and claim me. So it was, because they had told me in the hospital, well, you had white amnesia, you can't remember anything that happened to you. And later when I got to IONS, which is the International Association of Near-Death Studies, it's a bunch of all kinds of people that have died and have weird experiences and there's thousands of them all over the world. And, and the stories are similar, but they're diverse. and. It's, it was just a joy to just find my tribe. You know, I fit in, I could tell the story and nobody said, don't tell me that story. It sounds terrible. Um, they, 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 they really helped me uh, with their experiences to understand that I experienced hell with my spirit, not with my body and my brain. So that was how I remember every detail of that thing 21 years later, but I don't remember where I left my keys yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, that is burned into my psyche. Uh, but I, I, I had to, I thought if I could just write this stuff down and put it in, you know, take the piece of paper and put it in a drawer and the next day, write it all down, put it in a drawer. Maybe someday I'll, I'll write a story about it. Um, it kept me busy because it was not much I could do. I was so frail. It took me a good year to get enough strength back to be able to, you know, have some sort of a life. Um, uh, thank God for my husband. He was working and I got to be a housewife uh, for the first time in my life, really have somebody bring in the paycheck. I'd had to do it my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, so that was wonderful. Um, and the years went by. I was at Ions for about 10 years and uh it took about 10 years for me to be able to tell that story to anybody. That was the first time I ever told it, the whole story. And nobody cringed. They, they clapped when I got out and, and uh, got to heaven. The whole thing, they just, what people said is, you know, you, you went there and you got out. You know, I can do it. Um, the thing is, what I learned over these last many years from speaking to other people mm -hmm. and my own uh, meditation and all that stuff is that um, God is all loving. He's all forgiving. He doesn't send anybody to hell. We choose to go. And with my Catholic upbringing, I was taught that, you know, most people don't go straight to heaven. They go to purgatory. I was told it was like hell, but you get out. Only saints, Mother Teresa, somebody like that, shoot straight to God. Everybody else goes to purgatory. Right. So I bought it. You know, I live my life with, okay, if I, I don't know, take a dollar out of my mom's purse, I'll do a little time in purgatory. But say, if I say a rosary, then I get time off. So it was this big math game I played my whole life. <clears throat> and so I pretty much expected to go to purgatory. So I did. And 
the experiences in hell, it took me a long time to realize a lot of those things that happened to me were also kind of parallel with the hellish things that actually happened in my life. So I even made my own hell. So this, this, what I want to get out to people is you don't have to go to hell unless you want to, unless you choose to. Otherwise, just be a good person. I was told the, the things I was told was to be loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, encouraging, grateful, non-judgmental, and useful. When I asked, I said, well, I've, I never want to go to that place again. What must I do? And those are the things that came up. If you can't remember them all, be loving and kind. And, and make that your mantra in the morning when you wake up. I do. Dear God, help me be loving, kind, whatever. And, and, and it's the small things. It's the small ways that you can do it. Um, somebody was asking, you know, what, what, this, what was this great thing that you had to do when you got back? And it took me years. I didn't have to be Joan of Arc. I, I could just do little things every day to everybody. And that's going to do it. That's, that's the ticket. And it's easy. Anybody can do it. You don't have to go to hell. Uh, don't go there. It's bad. So that's kind of where I am now is uh, I finally, at one of the IONS uh, conferences last year, some lady was starting a little publishing company and she wanted to know, she says, do you have a book? Do you have something you need to get out? And, and all through the years, people have said, boy, you have got to write a story about that. And so I, I finally picked up the flyer and I said, yeah. So she helped me get the book together and I had a wonderful editor and, and we published it in, in June and um, it turned out really well. And the people that read it say it's a real page turner that uh, starting with my grandparents and my dad's accident on the, on the beach and the war and, and how they got together and all of it is there's a lot of humor in that. There's sad parts. There's tragic parts, but it's very uplifting and positive, and leaves people with a, a really good feeling about stuff. And uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell, William. What else would you like to? Well, do? I got my question. I guess would be after you've gone through this experience. First of all, I got a quick curiosity question. Um, sure. From the last day you you remember. The, your last recollection, I think you said, was like the twenty eighth day of December. When, when, when was the next day that you actually had like a cognitive knowledge of what day it was? I believe it was January seventeenth. Uh, that was my daughter's birthday. January the seventeenth. So you literally lost twenty days of your life. Like you have no recollection. Well, I, went, I went to the hospital at twenty eighth. I remember going out on the 31st. So yeah, it was about eight, 17, 18 days. Mm. And I mean, they just thought they saw me sitting there. Now, the one thing that, that was kind of interesting is uh, I had been trying to tell some, anybody, they said, well, you know, what happened? And I said, I, well, anyway, I, I started with the bad stuff and they said, Oh God, I don't want to hear about that. And my mom says, you talk to Patrick. That was my friend that has on heaven. Right. And I says, how do you know that? Yes, I did. She says you were laying there day after day after day with no expression. Your face was all 
gray and, and you didn't move and we did no matter what we said. And I was sitting next to you one time and all of a sudden your face kind of lit up and you tried to smile and you were trying to talk. And she, she says, I knew you were seeing Patrick. And I said to him, don't you dare take her. You send her back. Well, I almost strangled my own mother. I said, Lord, are you kidding me? And she says, no. And I says, because oh, I, I kept saying for months and months and months, why did you save me? I wanted to be in heaven. Why did you guys save me? If that ever happens again, don't save me. And my mother finally says, don't worry, we won't. <laughs> As a joke, kind of. Because uh, once you've been there, heaven is home. And, and, and you just, you, you get so homesick being back here. And another thing that I've learned from these other people is, uh, we start in heaven, that's why it's our home. And then people say, too many of them to, for me to discount it, that we choose to come down here. We choose to become human. We be, choose what we wanna learn. We choose our little heaven family goes with us. Sometimes you're my son, sometimes you're my friend. Sometimes you're just somebody I meet once and we never see each other again, like you. You know, you had me on this program. So somewhere way up before we were born, we decided we'd do this. It makes life so much more fun. Uh, not only do you think um, about people in your life that you picked, but it's the situations. It's the, gee, God, why me type things, like when my baby died. Um, to be able to say, wow, I chose that. Wow, I wonder what the lesson was there. Well, I've learned that people that come down or souls that just come down for a short period of time say, you know, I, I, I'm done with earth. I really don't want to stay very long, but I'll help you with this lesson. So the soul that was my baby chose to come down and be with me for nine months and two days. And then she went home just like we planned. And had that not happened to me, there were two of my best friends lost babies. And a, a lot of people I know have lost babies. And I am now full of empathy instead of just sympathy because of that experience. And I've been able to help other people in that tragedy that other people can't help because they've never been there. So anything terrible that happens to you, look for the blessing uh, because there's a, there's a lesson and it's gonna, it'll, it'll work onto good. That I, I found to be very true. Kathy, you have an amazing and an intriguing story. Uh, I can only imagine. Uh, I, we got just a, a, a small capsule, a uh, very uh, just a glimpse of uh, of your tr your whole story that's detailed in the book. Uh, where exactly can they find the book? Where can my listeners find your book? Just go to Amazon.com and type in Misfit in Hell to Heaven Expat. Okay. And it'll come up and you can just order it there. That's the cheapest way to do it. They can and, also um, reach out to you how? Uh, I have a website that's the same address, www, the, the book. And then there, there's a little tab that says contact and just put in your name and your email address. And if you've got a question or whatever, um, I can get you there. You can get me there. 
I'm assuming you're also on Facebook if they're looking for you. I'm on Cause, Facebook. Because everybody, everybody's on Facebook. <laughs> I know. And I tried to have my own personal account and then a, and a book account. But the book account was just so much trouble. I know. So much So I just put my own. When you get on my Facebook, you're going to see me and okay. my friends. And every now and then I'll throw in an ad for the book. But uh, I am more than my book. Oh, I, I'm a hundred percent sure of that. No, I know I'm more like a thousand percent sure of that. Uh, the the book, the experience is just one chapter in your life. Absolutely, I understand that. But like I said, hey, for my listeners, guys, check this lady out. Her story, like I said, we got just a snapshot of what's going on with her. Uh, pick her book up at Amazon.com. Uh, it's a real page turner, according to her now. And she would. Well, the reviews. And, and, that's what the that's reviews say. say. The reviews say it's a real page turner. Uh, Kathy, I, I can't thank you enough for being here today. Uh, I'll have all it, I'll have all your contact information as part of the episode notes, and of course, uh, you'll see uh, when the episode actually comes out. You'll see all the stuff being promoted within it, and I'll reach out to you and let you know that for sure. Okay. Okay. All Thanks, right. William. I loved being hey. here. You take hey, care. I appreciate you being on. And as always, okay. guys, Wally out. Hey guys, this is William with World of Wally. If you guys played the third tree in your third grade play, or if you played Hamlet in your college production, if you think you're a rising star in the industry, or you want to be the rising star in an industry, or you're a podcaster looking for a rising star in the industry, check out Steve Joyner, guys, SJ Network. You can reach him at stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. He will put you together with the people that you need to be successful. So remember, guys, stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner.